DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald World, and The Roots of the Faith, The Church Fathers to You, on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Well, thanks for having me back, Chris. It's a lot of fun, and it's almost like being on a treasure hunt. You mm-hmm. know, you get to go through this great library, and you keep finding these little bits of gold and precious gems and everything. It, it's an amazing thing. The greatest gift that we have as Catholics is the number one topic we're talking about today, yes. and that's the celebration of the Mass, the great gift of the Eucharist. Yes, it's something that our Lord desired to give to us. You read St. Luke's account of the Last Supper, and you find him at the beginning of it just burning, burning with Mm -hmm. desire to have that last Passover meal. And then St. Luke talks about the course of that meal and how he took bread and blessed and broke it and and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, right? This Mm -hmm. is my body. And then he took the the cup of wine. You know, this is the standard fare in a Passover meal. But he's saying that it's different this time. He's Mm -hmm. saying that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. And that's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. What he was doing was he was transforming everything that was about to follow from an execution on Calvary into a sacrifice, an offering of himself to the Father. It was a great gift. And then he says to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. So he wants them to do this forever and ever. And Mm -hmm. when we hear that word remembrance today as Americans in the 21st century, maybe we're thinking of memory as a psychological act. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way our Lord was talking about it, and that's not the way his apostles would have heard it. Because memory then was, especially in in the context of a religious rite, was a, a recollection of something, of an event itself, not just in the mind, but a recollection of the event, so that when you celebrated the Passover, you weren't just saying, hey, remember the good old days when we were, we were brought out of Egypt? No, you were entering into Israel in that generation, and you yourself were being brought out of slavery in the present tense. It was a real presence, okay? Mm-hmm. That, kind of, that kind of salvation that they experienced through the Passover, that entering into the covenant. Well, now we have this this great salvation, this great act of salvation, the Paschal mystery, the Passover mystery that began with the Last Supper, continued with the the execution on Calvary, which was really an offering, Mm -hmm. and then continued on through his, his death and burial and his resurrection, and later his glorification, All of these things are caught up in that act that priests, even today, do in remembrance of him. So precious of an action that 
they would die for it. So precious that they would die for it. Yes. Oh, my. And you find that even on Easter Sunday, what's the first thing our Lord does? You know, he finds these disciples walking on that road to Emmaus. And what does he want to do with them? He wants to break bread. And he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. He celebrates the Eucharist and then he vanishes from their sight. Well, why? Because he was really present there. Mm -hmm. He didn't need to show them his physical body anymore because his sacramental body was there in the bread, on the table. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful experience. So that by the time we move from that Gospel of Luke to Luke's next book, The Acts of the Apostles, his next bestseller, Mm -hmm. you know, what does Luke want to do? He wants to show us the breaking of the bread happening all the time. You know, go to that great passage in Acts 2.42, and uh, and we find that that first community of Christians living in Jerusalem, while the temple was still standing, they're meeting in homes, they're gathering for the breaking of the bread and the communion. The breaking of the bread, sometimes it's translated as fellowship, but it's Mm -hmm. koinonia, communion, the breaking of the bread and the communion, the teaching of the apostles and the prayers. I got them out of order, but it's those four elements. And where do we experience those four elements today and in every age of the church's life? In the Mass. Mm. You know, the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of the bread and the prayers, the fellowship, the communion, all of those things are what the first generation of Christians experienced in the Mass. And you go on through the Acts of the Apostles and we find this breaking of the bread happening again and again. You read the epistles Mm -hmm. of the apostles and they all seem to assume that this is going on. The gathering is there, and the epistles are being read in the Eucharistic assembly. In St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he's, of course, spelling out what etiquette is supposed to be during the Mass. You got me on uh, going here. I mean, this is something I'm passionate about, but we didn't even get out of that first generation. And we're already in a very Eucharistic place. It is such a precious gift that even the Apostle Paul warns us that it is so powerful and, and not to take it lightly and not to not to even enter into the action or the disposition of the Eucharist with a spirit or a, a demeanor that would dishonor it. Yes, this is something that we find echoed throughout those early centuries of the church in the works of the fathers. But there it is in 1 Corinthians 11. 27 to 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Mm. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And then there's the kicker. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This kind of disrespect for the Eucharist, this kind of lapse of Eucharistic etiquette that Paul describes throughout that chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, can be fatal. It can kill you. That is a passage of Scripture that we don't hear very often. A lot of times we do hear that part of Corinthians where we're told not to take it unworthily, but we don't hear the consequences, not even today in modern apologetic circles. Right. Well, but it's it's something that's very much there in the life of the church. And even in those first generations, in one of the very early liturgical manuals that we have, um, it's... Uh, it's the didache, it's known as by its mm-hmm. Greek name, the didache. And that, that means simply the teaching. It's, it was the teaching of the apostles. And scholars today believe that the liturgical parts of the didache, 
uh, were written probably around 48 AD. So we're talking about a document that is likely older than just about everything in the New Testament. Wow. At least when it was set down to paper. And, and they say that because the, the prayers of the Mass, as it's relayed there in the Didache, are so Jewish in their tone that it must have been a time before the Council of Jerusalem and really be, before the Church expanded very far beyond the, the Holy Land. So what do we find in the Didache? You know, in the Didache, we, we find the Church exhorting its members to confess their sins before they approach the altar, to reconcile with one another, you know, to do that penance before you dare to come to the altar because it's, this is a consequence of the real presence. This is the Lord Jesus himself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming to see you to your place. So you want to prepare the way of the Lord. You want to prepare his way and you want to make yourself beautiful before him. Now he might not care too much about our outward appearance, but he wants us to be inwardly beautiful. And so he wants us to to make things right. And St. Paul was dealing with that reality. We find it in the Didache. We find it in many documents of the church. The church father Origen was very much concerned about this and and he saw it as a consequence of the of the real presence. We find it in Cyril of Jerusalem, this sense of the reality of Jesus' presence on the one hand, but also the consequences of that teaching on the other. What does that mean for me? You know, what does that mean for the way I approach the altar? We'll return to Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. We now return to The Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina. The sense of the sacred is so vital to our understanding of the Eucharist that that great gift of the book of Revelation mm-hmm. it is there to 
help us to maintain that awesome appreciation. That's right, because we can't see the spiritual realities. But what Revelation does is, in a symbolic way, it makes them imaginable for us. We can read the book of Revelation and be struck with awe before what really takes place in the liturgy, the great spiritual warfare that's going on when heaven touches down on earth and how how the saints come to our assistance and how the demons want to attack us to keep us from receiving that grace, to keep the kingdom of God from establishing that base in our neighborhood, in our Mm -hmm. parish. So all of these things are at work when we go to Mass. Um, The Church Fathers had a keen sense of that. The, the reality of it, and they conveyed that very well in their teachings on the Eucharist. And the teaching on the Eucharist is uh, is very much there from generation to generation. I wrote a whole book just trying to lay out that teaching and showing it go from generation to generation. The book goes from the time of the Apostles until the time of the Council of Nicaea, the generation of Nicaea. And, and really, I just wanted to show that what the Church believed then, what the church practiced then, what the church taught then, is what the church still believes and practices and teaches today. It's recognizable in those early those early years. That book is the Mass of the Early Christians, and that's a, a topic for a, a different series that we've done. It's uh, just a wonderful reflection when we go back and look at this gift of the Eucharist and how it, as you've just stated, by bringing us St. Paul, that if we take it unworthily, it doesn't harm us, but it doesn't help us. (laughs) Right. But here we have those saints, those fathers of the church, that in their great reverence, their great love for the Eucharist, are ultimately, and that witness to it, become martyrs, receive that, that death of martyrdom, because of their devotion to it. One of my favorite stories from the early church is the story of the martyrs of Abatina in North Africa. Um, they were martyrs at the, the, during the persecution of Diocletian, and they were martyrs for the Eucharist. They left themselves vulnerable because they gathered on a Sunday morning. Well, Sunday was an ordinary work day in the Roman Empire. What's so special about Sunday? Today, it's our weekend, right? And mm-hmm. we, we can relax and all of those things, and we love it. You know, we love it. We, we write songs about Sunday morning because it's so relaxing. Mm-hmm. Well, we have that sense because of 20 years of Christian history. The early church did not enjoy that, the Roman Empire. As I said, it was, it was a regular work day. And if Christianity is illegal <laughs> and Sunday is sacred to Christians, and we see these gatherings of people on a Sunday morning and they're not going to work, well, it makes that gathering an easy target for the officials, right? Mm-hmm. The martyrs of Abatina faced that. Uh, and they met anyway, and they had the Mass anyway, and they received our Lord anyway, and they were arrested. Mm-hmm. The officials closed in, and they arrested them all. And the judge was kind of amazed by this, and he thought, uh, you know, he, he had to ask them, why would you leave yourselves so vulnerable? Why, why would you expose yourselves to such danger? Mm-hmm. And I think he thought they were stupid, But they weren't. They knew what they were doing, and they showed him. And they said, it's because we wanted the Mass. And they have this great line where they said, Christians make the Mass, but the Mass makes Christians too. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Eucharist is forming us in the way we need to be formed. It's, it's, form, it's conforming us to the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so much did they want that, that they followed up with this beautiful line 
as they were facing the magistrate. They said, we cannot live without the Mass. We cannot live without the Mass. They would rather die than miss a Sunday Mass. And you think of all the reasons people miss Mass today. Mm-hmm. Some people are sick, and they have a legitimate reason for staying home, and they, or they're caring for the sick, and they have a legitimate reason for staying home. Other people miss Mass because they, they want to go to a, a, a football game or a baseball game, or they right. want to watch one on TV, or they just want to sleep in, and that sort of thing. It's crazy. We should try to recover that spirit of the early church where our ancestors in the faith would rather die than miss Mass. Mm. Uh, one of those church fathers, St. Ignatius of Antioch, mm-hmm. what a witness in his martyrdom, but also what a witness of his love of the Eucharist. That's right. And and what's neat about Ignatius is he was writing so early in the church's life. He was probably an old man when he was writing, and he was writing in 105 AD. Mm-hmm. And we have these letters he wrote um, on his way to his own martyrdom. He was kind of a, a celebrity victim. And so they were moving him from Antioch in Syria, and they were trying to get him to Rome so he could die Mm -hmm. in the capital. So he's on his way there, and along the way, he's writing letters to, uh, to the various churches in the towns where they would stop and spend the night. In almost every letter, he talks about the Eucharist, and he talks about it in these realistic terms. He talks about it as the flesh of Christ. Mm -hmm. He uses that word flesh, not just the Greek word for body, but the Greek word for flesh, meat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a graphic term that he's using. So he's very early witness to the real presence, but also what Ignatius is already assuming in 105, 107 AD is a deep and complex Eucharistic theology. He sees the Eucharist as the life of the church as the organizing principle in the church, that everything in the Christian's life, everything in the Christian community is oriented toward the Eucharist, toward the Mass. And so everywhere he goes, he's talking about Eucharistic etiquette, the way St. Paul did. He's talking about the theology behind the Eucharist. Who can celebrate a valid Eucharist? Who should be attending the Eucharist? How do you receive the Eucharist worthily? All of these things are his concerns as he's moving from Antioch and Syria and to Rome. And finally, when he writes to the Roman church, he's so caught up in these Eucharistic images that they become the image of his own martyrdom. Mm. He's identifying himself with Christ, yes, and Christ's self-offering, but he's seeing it in Eucharistic terms. He doesn't see himself on Calvary, nailed to the cross. No, he talks about himself as a libation, the offering of wine poured out, just as Jesus poured that wine at the Last Supper. He desires to be the purest of wheat, ground, ground in the teeth of the lions to be made pure bread for Christ. That's what he wants. He wants to be bread. He wants to be wine. He wants to be a Eucharistic offering, just as Jesus Christ was and is a Eucharistic offering. So closely had Ignatius identified himself with the Eucharist he celebrated in the church that it's all he wanted to do as he was living. It's all he wanted to do as he was dying. It was his his wish to go out the way he lived his life, celebrating the Mass. It's a beautiful thing, and we find it 
attested to so early in the church's life in such a deep way and in such an omnipresent way in the documents that have survived. I think it bears noting that they have the opportunity to escape death by simply renouncing their belief of the power and presence of Christ in that Eucharist. That's right. People talk about these ancient bishops as if they were on a power trip mm-hmm. because they because they exercised legitimate authority within mm-hmm. the church. But who wants a power trip like that? Who wants authority when it means almost certain death? And not a pretty death. It's to be mm-hmm. chewed up by beasts or mm-hmm. maybe to be burned at the stake like Ignatius's friend Polycarp. These are not pleasant ways to go. You mm-hmm. could be tortured for days. We have accounts of martyrdom that were left to us by pagans who witnessed these things and were amazed at what they saw the Christians go through. Days of torture before, before finally death coming mercifully for these Christians. You know, what, what kind of power is that? Well, it's the power that Jesus Christ knew as the Son of God. It's a more perfect conformity to his life. And they were willing to take that on. They were willing to do that, again, because they saw it as a, a manifestation of their Eucharistic life, a more perfect communion with Jesus. It's a communion that had begun in the Mass, but maybe it was to be completed in martyrdom. If that was God's will, so be it. They were ready for it. In the roots of the faith, you are attempting to help us once again in yet another way of appreciating what the fathers have to give us. And for many in the church, the last several generations were not even aware of the fathers because many of their works were lost to history by virtue of language and and other factors. And yet their works are all around us because we enjoy so much of what they left for us. Again, the traditions of discipline in the church, uh, the the canon of the scriptures, the, the forms of the sacraments, the form of the mass, all of those things were lovingly preserved by the fathers. They had received them from the apostles who had received them from Jesus Christ, but the fathers took special care to preserve these things and pass them on from generation to generation. Uh, and, And of course, the Mass is the most beautiful and the supreme example of that. Beautiful thing. What's beautiful to me, what's especially beautiful, is that when the, the church today decides, well, we're going to lay out the faith for believers, just the basics, and we're going to put together a catechism of the Catholic Church. Well, what do they do? They want to describe the Mass in the catechism, and, and I suppose they could have gotten any priest in Rome or anywhere on earth to write a description of the Mass, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't. What they did was they went back to the description of the Mass that Justin Martyr put down on paper, around 150 A.D. Wow. 150 A.D. So we're talking about just a stone's throw from the life of our Lord, from the, a stone's throw from the, the death of the last apostle. And it's this record of the Mass as it was celebrated in the Church of Rome. And when Justin lays that out, he describes, 
the 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 presider at mass uh he de- he describes the the congregation at mass so we have the basic players he describes the form of the mass well first there are the readings of the prophets the readings of the scriptures the memoirs of the apostles are read aloud and then the the presider at the mass will preach this homily interpret the readings of the scriptures. And after he does that, well, we have these other elements of the Mass. We have a collection taken up for the poor. We have the kiss of peace. We have the great Eucharistic prayer that at the end of which we say the great amen. And during the course of that Eucharistic prayer, the bread and the wine are offered to God and they are Eucharisted. (laughs) He uses Mm -hmm. the word Eucharist as a verb. And they're, they're made into the body and blood of Christ. And then there's the communion. And after that, the Eucharist itself is taken out to the sick and homebound in the Church of Rome. Well, we look at that description of the Mass, and it's exactly what we celebrate today. That's so when right. they were putting together the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1994, and they just wanted to lay out the basics of the, church, of the faith, and they wanted to describe just the facts about the Mass... They took this description from 150, 160 A.D., and they just put it down there verbatim in the catechism. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it, it's an unbelievable treasure for us because it gives us the roots of the faith. Right. And the more things change, the more the faith went from that acorn to the great oak tree, the more they stayed the same. And the more the life of the, 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 the church was the body and blood of Christ, you know, that seed that fell into the ground and, and, and died and, and, and nourishes us even today. In this final moments of the segment on the, the great gift of the Mass, uh, any final thoughts, Mike? How did that time go by so quickly? That's what well, I want. So we're talking about the mass. Oh, that's wow. why. Well, any final thoughts? Well, there's so much you can say. We barely got out of the first generation of Christian history in talking about the mass. Well, just think about the witness of all of those generations in the time of the fathers and what they have to teach us about the mass, how we experience it today, and how we should be living it from day to day. It's so powerful what the fathers have to give us. It's amazing to me that uh, you'll you'll sometimes see these Protestant tracts, these anti-Catholic tracts, I should say, um, that that, that claim that the Mass is a 4th century invention. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't even have to get to the 4th century before you already encounter ample testimony to the Eucharistic life of the Church. It's the same life we live today. It's the same life we feed off of today. It's the object of our love. It's the subject at the the center of our life. It's the roots of our faith. It really is. It really is. And you know, it's a foretaste of what we hope to know forever and ever and ever in heaven. Christ will not have more glory when we get to heaven. The only difference will be that we'll be able to see it. Right now, all of that glory is there in the Eucharist, where he gave us his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he really doesn't have anything else to give us. That's everything he has, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he's given it all to us, the same way he gave it to the fathers of the church. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to The Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. 
This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina.